Justin, social media, something about Facebook has allowed me to not only have fun and and go back and forth and, you know, have cute little quips with people, but it's really established very strong, deep relationships. And one of my very first relationships on Facebook was with a guy named Rick Smolke from Addison, Illinois. And I don't know how we connected. All I know is he was seeing what I was doing with women who write at the very beginning. This is when I first started. This is going back eight years ago. And he immediately said, I want to help you. Rick Smolke is a commercial printer. He also does personal printing, you know, from business cards to CD to packaging to signs, calendars. He does all of that stuff. But then I hired him. He did the galleys for my book. He did my bookmarks. He did my signature plates. There, He is my go-to guy. And what I will say about quick impressions is what sets them apart from every other printer is the customer service. They are just the most amazing people. They have graphic artists on there that'll help you design your card. Their prices will match any wholesaler on the internet. They'll get it shipped to you. Their prices are the best. The relationship you will have with them is the best. So what I'm going to suggest is if you have anything you need done, whether it's for your, they do, they do professional football teams. They do huge corporations, the printing, they do huge jobs, but they, no job is too small because they're really people. They're people people. They're What's that expression? They're people persons. And so if you have anything you need done, please call Quick Impressions. They're right outside of Chicago, Quick Impressions. And please ask for Rick Smolke and tell him that Vicky sent you. And I promise he's going to take, they are going to take such good care of you and match any price you'll get anywhere. Quick Impressions, Rick Smokey. And you can find them at quickimpressions.com. And that's quick, Q-U-I-K, no C, quickimpressions.com. Save the C for the Rick and ask for Rick. Welcome to Vicki Abelson's broadcast, The Road Taken. Vicki's the creator and host of the renowned celebrity-driven literary salon, Women Who Write, and the author of Amazon bestseller, Don't Jump. Here's Vicki. Hey, Justin, how you doing tonight? Good. How you doing, Vicki? You know, I'm doing okay, I'm, but, but I want you to like share with the people out there in, in radio land that today was a little bit of a frustration for you to get here, right? Yeah, I mean, traffic was terrible, but y- that happens a lot. <laughs> it does, and last week it happened to me, and it was really scary because we had a guest coming, and I, had fi- I didn't arrive till five minutes before, and today that happened to you, and it's like really stressful when you're, when you're doing a radio show. Yeah. Um, that's the matter of... of um, LA, I guess. Yeah. Um, I guess it happens everywhere in a lot of places. But so, so now to unwind and to come down a little before we welcome tonight's guest, I wanted to ask you: Have you ever um, been politically active in your life? I mean, you're, you're of that. What's I keep forgetting? What's the name of your generation? You're not the millennials. What What are you? What are you? Do you know what your you generation? You know, we looked. I looked this up the other day. Yeah, you're 29, right? Yeah, I'm 29. Okay. So I think. We actually are considered millennials. You are, okay. Yeah, because I think what they said was was like eighty four and on. Wow, were millennials that's a pretty or big something group. Like that. Okay. Yeah, but then they stopped, and then there's some new. A new there was term another now? one after that. You of know, course. like uh, I don't know. There's like there's so many between. Yeah, you know, why? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, okay. So Wheezy and I, we're baby boomers. Yes. Okay. So as a baby boomer, um, I grew up, um, I was very young in, in the 60s when the political thing was going on, but 
I became politically active very young because it was a very passionate time. I was a hippie, and I smoked pot, and I marched on Washington, and I did all of that before I was 13. And um, and I did so, and so I was really, really active, and I demonstrated, and I, I and I marched, and I sat in, and I. I was in the Progressive Labor Party, is the, and and I was sensitive to SDS and 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 the Black Panthers, and I read Chairman Mao, and and I haven't done shit since then. You know, it's like I became this apathetic like human being. Like I was very boo 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 in my teens, and and even into my early twenties, and then the seventies came, and it was like kind of all over for me. So, and I was still very young, actually. I was still in my teens, but so. As a millennial, Justin, has there ever been anything that's called you to action? Uh, I ha- I've never really been into politics very much, mm-hmm. so I never really did much for it. Which um, I totally get. The, the, yeah. These days, although now I'm very passionate again about human rights, gay rights, yeah. uh, um, um, gun control. I mean, there are things now very worthy of being passionate about. Oh, for sure. Right? And so tonight our guest, um, Gary Kroger, who many people just think of as the funny guy on Saturday Night Live for a few years there in the 80s with Julia Louis-Dreyfus and, and Brad Hall and also in the years when Billy Crystal was on and Martin Short and everything in his last year there. But Gary is somebody who has gone on to have um, a, hu- a tremendous social conscience and is currently running for the Iowa House of Representatives. And I'm really excited to uh, to get into it tonight and find out how this guy went from being the funny guy, a funny guy on Saturday Night Live, to running for a very serious political office and someone who takes life very seriously and has made a huge commitment to public service. And I respect the hell of it. And I love the hell out of Gary. And here he is. Let's say hi to Gary Kroger. Hi, Gary. Hello. Well, yeah. Okay. okay, you got us. Okay, cool. Hey, Gary, this is Justin Levins, um, my fabulous sound engineer. This is Gary Kroger. Hello. My fabulous friend. Hey, Gary. Um, just as an aside, so you have a, a point of reference for Justin, um, do you know about the Foo Fighters? You a Foo Fighters fan by any chance? Yeah. Okay, so they had a documentary on HBO called Sonic Highways. Do you know anything about that? I know Sonic Highways. I love Sonic Highways. Fantastic, because Justin is the Emmy-winning sound engineer of Sonic Highways. Oh, my God. What a fantastic show. Right, exactly. And also, I'm in in the studio, uh, Louise Palanca's studio. So uh, Louise is here. Say hi to Gary. Louise, were you uh, at Women Who Write when Gary came... uh, that was a while I ago. I was, but I also want you to tell Gary about how accomplished I am. Louise is of the, Louise is incredibly accomplished. Louise did the <laughs> documentary on the Cowsills that is extraordinary if you haven't oh seen it, but it's it's a fantastic documentary. Oh. <laughs> because I, I'm not lying when I say this. First of all, I love Sonic Highways. I'm a huge Cowsills fan. Yay! What, <laughs> Gary? Because, yeah, because... I love a flower Exactly. That was my favorite song that wasn't a Beatles song. There <laughs> you go. Exactly. <laughs> Perfect. Well, if you haven't seen the documentary, 
Wheezy, is it on? Is it on Netflix? Where? How can how can Gary see it's it? It's on Amazon streaming, okay. or I could send Gary a DVD with Ooh, a special look, bonus that, features. Oh, you I must. love Gary. Long, beautiful hair. <laughs> yes. Okay, so and if you <laughs> haven't God, seen, if you haven't seen um, the number one video of women who write on YouTube, is the one that Bob Castle did with us a couple of years ago, oh, and it's got like wow, twenty five thousand hits on it, and I keep getting comments like still to this day literally i got a comment two days ago every time anyone discovers it they it, it if you love the castles you will love even if you don't like the castles you will love this this youtube video it's amazing i'll send you the link after the show and and oh we, i would love you i i don't lie i actually youtube castle music at work and put on my headphones <laughs> i love that okay so wheezy will send you the uh the documentary which is going to blow you away it's a little depressing i have to tell you their life is very intense but uh, well it is and yeah. and you know the yeah the death and uh, and all sorts of things but yeah but but okay but today gary we're here to talk about you gary kroger oh, wow. and uh, amazing isn't that published of anyone you've mentioned so far well you are, i have no documentaries you have no document <laughs> but you know what you you gary kroger were on saturday night live for like three years which is craziness and we're going to talk about that and how you did that um in the dick eversall years but but also, your 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 buddy from Northwestern from Saturday Night Live, Julia Louis Dreyfus, just won another Emmy. Wow! Oh my no. God! I mean, she just—if I were the other piece, she's like the Meryl Streep of television. If I were the other actresses, I just wouldn't even show up. I mean, Julia, yeah, you, yeah, no, right? it's true. There's no more room on her mantle. I mean, it's it's unbelievable. And you were, but, but the funny thing is, yeah. is, we know she deserves it. You watch yeah. the show. Yeah, it's like, well, who's better than that? No amazing. one. She's amazing. And But you know what's yeah, also amazing. interesting is that when she was on Saturday Night Live in those days, they didn't know what to do with her, and they didn't really properly nope. utilize her. And to be honest with you, nope. I didn't really think she was very funny. And it wasn't until she was on Seinfeld that I really got to see her brilliance. I mean, she had her moments yeah. on Saturday Night Live, but Saturday Night Live often struggles with women and what to do with them. Yeah. They, they figure out That's a few a of them. But now, you were friends with Brad and Julia back at Northwestern, correct? That is correct. And did you did well, you guys do stuff I together? I knew Julia before uh, Brad. Oh, okay. Tell, tell us this. All right, wait. So let's start at the beginning before we get to Brad and Julia. So you're a kid in Cedar Falls, Iowa, which I love because to me, as soon as I hear those words, Cedar Falls, Iowa, I think of um, It's a Wonderful Life, right? Immediately, I'm in that town. It's and does it look like that? Is. Does it look like that? It, yeah, it kind of does. If you go downtown and there's a bridge over the river into a Victorian town, which is Cedar Falls, and there's a little bit of snow, like there will be in about three months. Wow. Yeah. It's Bedford Falls. There's no <laughs> question about it. That's so cool. And, and is it, how, like, how, what's the population like in Cedars Falls? Well, it's a twin city. Um, so the, the metropolitan area here is, I don't know, 140,000. The county's oh. probably a quarter of a million or something. So it's not, it's, yeah, it's not really like rolling into Mayberry, you know, <laughs> I judge a town by how many McDonald's, and we have four. <laughs> so, you know, it's just cosmopolitan. Um, <laughs> My but, town but only has still, one. You know, the town of Cedar Falls is 40,000. So oh, it's, it's yeah. quaint, uh -huh. but it's a, it's a university town. So, it's, ah. it's, you know, it's, it's not the middle of nowhere. Gotcha. 
Okay, so now you grow up there, and w- when did you start? When did you get stars in your eyes? At what point do you realize you want to be a performer, an actor? There was never a time when I didn't know I wanted to be. Wow. You know, I, you know, I'm going to credit the Beatles. I really wow. am, because I'm six, about to turn seven, and my life changed dramatically when I heard "I Want to Hold Your Hand" on the radio. I so get. You know, that. up to that point. I think I liked the alphabet song or whatever. (laughs) And I remember distinctly in the back of our 56 Chevy Bel Air, my dad is on AM radio looking for cowboy music. And he goes by, I want to, and he goes right by it. And I went, dad, go back, go back. And he goes back begrudgingly, and it's, I want to hold your hand. Look, by a buttonhole band called the Beatles. They'll be in the blah, blah, blah. I was hooked from that moment on. Wow. And Is like that before Ed Sullivan or after Ed Sullivan? I lived and breathed everything they did and everything they said and everything they played. And there was this magical um, chemistry, this performance. They were funny, but yet the music was fantastic. Mm. They were clever. And so many of us, I think, got this bug to be entertainers. Did you did you want to and be a musician so, first? Did you ever have that thought? Say again. Did you did you want to be a musician first? Did you ever have that thought? Oh, I don't think in the six and seven year old brain you really figured it out. <laughs> I think that I thought being a Beatle was an actual career path. I mean, I think it, I thought at the time it was something you might choose in college, and I thought, well, that's what I'm going to do. I didn't really relate it to playing the bass guitar or the drums. It was just, oh, I'm going to be entertaining and girls are going to love me. Okay, <laughs> I'm so kidding. I love this. Okay, so at what point did you have your first foray with an audience? I was in the third grade, mm-hmm. the same era, okay. and I'm in summer school, and I improvised this play with <laughs> A, a girl in my class, and it was just classic prince and princess and whatever, whatever little thing. Mm-hmm. She smiled, and I I got a laugh. Oh. Somehow I got a laugh. Mm-hmm. I think I passed out because her father was a dentist, and she had this uh, orthodonture that was really grotesque, and she <laughs> smiled, and I passed out. <laughs> and the audience laughed. And I remember thinking, this is no lie, Vic. I remember the moment going, this is my life. Oh, I love that. <laughs> I want this feeling forever. I love it. Okay, so so third grade. Okay, so from there, what happens with stage well, stuff? You know, then you wait to get into high school, and I did every single play and every speech contest and every music contest. I and w- simply were you did successful everything. then, Gary? I did everything. Right, right from the get-go, were you the leading man? Were you getting the parts? Did you ever not get a part yeah. you wanted? Yeah, and it's not the... Uh, yes, I did. But I worked for it. You know, I wanted to do it so badly. I studied, I worked, I went to plays, I went to college productions. I just loved it all so much mm-hmm. that I think that I became good at it. I, I earned, I think, the right to be the high school star of the play. I love and that. And that led to Northwestern, which was an excellent, you know, uh, school for, for dramatic art. Hell yeah. Here in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And that's where I met Brad Hall, and actually before that, Julia. How'd you meet and Julia? And others, Paul Barras. And 
we were sort of of the same ilk, Beatle fans, the same age, loved Monty Python, we loved the theater, we loved Brecht, we loved all this esoteric stuff, Mm -hmm. and we developed a comedy brand in Chicago um, that was actually enjoyed by the people at Second City, and that really led to Saturday Night Live. Okay, so tell tell that story, because I don't don't know that story. So so you guys had your own uh, improv, improv troupe? What, what did you do? Yes, we were the practical theater company, is okay. what we called ourselves. Okay. And we had a storefront on Howard Street. It was like 40, it was a 99-seat theater plan, you know, it was mm-hmm. equity waiver. Uh, I think we had 45 seats. And we would put on improv shows, and we would put on Breck. We wow. seldom produced shows, and Breck was sort of, I think, what we are... <laughs> our, 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 the motto was, <laughs> and we became a bit of a of a Chicago. I wouldn't say phenomenon, but Gary, before you get to Second City and all this, I want to I want to go back. Cause how did you fund this this performance space? How did you start this? How did because these are tools that that the audience of the road taken it wants to know. How did you guys get this going? That's interesting, um, because in a way, it never occurred to me. You know, we found a space, and I'm not sure what the rental was, but it was probably very cheap. Mm-hmm. It was probably a store that sold secondhand shoes or something, <laughs> and we, on our own dime and our own sweat and labor and, and nails and hammers, put together this theater. We built it ourselves. Mm-hmm. The overhead was very, very low, mm-hmm. and... We subsisted. We we survived by selling tickets. I was just going to say, did we, you make enough hand money? Them out. Oh, you would hand them out, but but you would sell some to cover expenses or not? You were all out yeah, of pocket. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah, it, it, you, you know, I, I can't even remember, but we certainly weren't getting rich. Right. You know, our, our 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 sets were what we could bring from home. You know, so it was very much an experimental stream of consciousness. Um, kind of theater. We called it guerrilla theater. Mm-hmm. And it, it was very physical, but yet cerebral. Mm-hmm. You know, um, it's hard to describe, but the stuff that we did was very, very uh, interesting, and it was different. I used to come out as a ventriloquist, but I wore a clown mask over my face so <laughs> that my lips could move and you'd never know. <laughs> but my, my ventriloquist dummy wore a clown mask, too. <laughs> oh, it, was, it was the world's worst ventriloquist act, uh-huh. but uh, this is hard to describe, but I had a tape recorder inside the suitcase that the ventriloquist dummy came out of. And at one point, I'd flick the switch, and I had pre-recorded the dummy. So you think you're watching a bad ventriloquist, and then all of a sudden the dummy really turns on the ventriloquist, and they're two completely separate voices. The audience <laughs> could not tell that it was recorded. Uh-huh. And it was just this real surrealistic, sad <laughs> piece of performance art. But that's the kind of thing that we did. Right. And did, did you get a glimpse of who you were going to be, who Julia was going to be, who Brad was going to be in those days? Were, were, there, were, there, were there touches of things that you ended up taking with you to Saturday Night Live? 
Oh, without a doubt. Now, uh -huh. there's a show, an improv comedy show at Northwestern called The Meow Show. Mm -hmm. And I first saw Julia on stage in The Meow Show. It would be about 78, maybe 79. Mm -hmm. And no one had ever heard of her. Here was this girl from Washington, D.C., and she's in the comedy show. And I sat in the audience. I wasn't involved in the show. Mm -hmm. And I said, oh, my God, that's the funniest, most talented human being I've ever seen. Wow. She was just a natural. Wow. It was unbelievable the depth of character she could create. Huh. Um, so, so they stifled the shit out of her Then when she started Saturday dating night, Brad Hall, um, you, you know, we became this world of guerrilla comedic people. Um, you know, it's, there's no straight line to all that. Okay, Vic, I'll tell you the perfect story. Yeah. So we would do these guerrilla shows, and they were all fairly well-received. Usually the critics would say a half of it was good, half of it was terrible. Mm -hmm. well, after a couple, three years, we took all of the sketches that were actually good, mm -hmm. and we created a show that I think we called the 50th Golden Anniversary Jubilee. <laughs> so it was only the sketches that were good, mm -hmm. that everybody liked. Mm -hmm. And it caught the attention of everybody in Chicago. Wow. And someone called me, my agent called me and said, Gary, Saturday Night Live wants to see you. So all you have to do is go in front of a camera and just do stuff. Mm -hmm. So I went into an office and I did everything from, you know, Red Skelton, the goodness, you know, to the mm -hmm. Beatles, to, you know, Barney Fife, anything that I could do. Mm -hmm. And I sent it off and never thought again about it. Mm -hmm. And then one day we did a show and we were told Dick Ebersol and Bob Tischler from Saturday Night Live wanted to talk to us. Mm -hmm. And literally they said, can you be in, in New York in a week? Hmm. We want you to be the new cast of Saturday Night Live. Wow. Now, yeah, that was amazing. It was amazing. Now, wait, the reality no, okay, of wait, it wait, is, wait, 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 before, earlier, wait, before you keep going. So they wanted you, Julia, and Brad. Was there anybody in your core group who wasn't invited? Or were you the three main well, people and they Paul took Well, Paul Ross was the other member of our entourage. Okay. And, and he was asked to be a writer. And, and we were all disappointed because Paul's a brilliant performer, brilliant performer. Mm -hmm. and, and we really thought it should be all of us. But at the time, they just wanted the three of us, and they brought Paul along as a writer. Okay. Um, so, but the four of us got to New York mm -hmm. and the reality was they were just trying to light a fire with Eddie Murphy. Mm -hmm. Eddie had already become a bit of a star and maybe just a little bit lazy. Mm -hmm. And so they wanted some new young kids to get in there and to light a fire. But uh -huh. So I'm told anyway. Uh -huh. Well, it did light a fire because he just took over the show mm -hmm. and we were really um, relegated to be, I, I used to say we were like the professor and Marianne before they actually got the credit, you know, when it was just and the rest. You know, that's kind of what our niche was. So when you look at those old shows, as you said, Julia doesn't seem all that funny, except for a few brief moments. Right. I didn't get a whole lot of great stuff to do, except a few moments of stuff that I wrote myself. Um, it was a difficult experience. So you Walter Mondale, how did that happen? And because that ended up paving the way for where you are today, which we'll get to. But so you, how did you, did you bring Walter Mondale to them or did they say, Gary, we want you to do Walter Mondale. How did that happen? I have a long history. Here's what they knew about me. Okay. I was everybody's favorite monkey. <laughs> I, mean, I was. It's like if they said, Kroger, can you do Alan Alda? And I'd go, well, I've never done it before, but I'd go into a room and, 
and in an hour I would come out, oh, I see. I thought that's what landmines were for. <laughs> the blood on Klinger's apron is clashing with his face. And so I could do it. Uh-huh. You know, Kroger, look up Wolf, uh, you know, uh, Robert Mitchum. And I'd go into a room and come out with, well, no, this was, I thought, I'm the star of this buddy's story. So, <laughs> so I'd make them laugh with an ability to come up with characters quickly. Okay. Well, Walter Mondale was one of those. They said, well, Kroger, it's, it's an election year. Walter Mondale's running. Uh, you're from the Midwest. Can you work him up? So I listened to some Walter Mondale, and I emerged from my office, and I went, um, Mr. Reagan started an arms race on Earth, and now he wants to extend it to the heavens. <laughs> so they gave me these Walter Mondale sketches, and, you know, I was pretty good at that. Yes, you were. And, and where, did the, where did the Donnie and Marie that, uh, that you and Julia did together, kissing, which is so upsetting? I think that was our idea of, you know, that we were sort of fish out of water because our comedy was very conceptualized. You know, uh, we did physical things like um, one of our stage pieces that we tried to bring to SNL was I would roll onto the stage and another actor would roll onto the stage and we're in a crouched position and, and we'd, we'd salute each other and say, Colonel, 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 well, it's looking bad out there. Boy, the bodies are piling up, the bleach bloated white bodies. And we'd start to get hotter and hotter and we'd realize we were kernels of popcorn. <laughs> I don't know if that, you know what I mean? Uh-huh. In the theater, that was very clever, but we tried to bring it to SNL and it didn't really fit. So, we were trying to come up with what is the SNL hook? How do you get onto this show? Mm-hmm. And it's kind of a one joke premise show. So we came up with, well, let's be Donnie and Marie. And every time we have a special, we sing these songs together and we start to make out <laughs> just the simplest, <laughs> stupidest joke in the world. But we did it like three times. <laughs> it was the same joke. <laughs> oh, my God, that's hysterical. And and was there anything that you guys really believed in and really pushed for that you couldn't get on the air? Well, Brad and I had this thing called the upside-down family. We thought it would be funny just to have, you just turn the camera upside down. It's just a regular sitcom, but everybody's always upside down. <laughs> and we thought, well, that's perfect for this show. Uh, yeah. I look forward to it like the bees every week. Oh, good, it's the upside-down family. <laughs> but we just couldn't get anywhere with it. Uh, and just so, didn't fly. so did you guys, were you constantly like trying and were things getting shut down, da- shut down or were you just taking what they gave you? Like how, how did that, how, what was the vibe on there for you guys, for you? I used to compare SNL to, you, you've got 12 writers and about 10 people in the cast. So you've got almost two dozen people. Mm-hmm. And I used to say it was like putting them in a rocket and you launch that rocket and then you're in outer space and everybody realizes they have a different mission. They're going to a different place. That's what every week felt like. Writers wanted to get their material on the air. Right. So they'd write for Eddie Murphy and Joe Piscopo and later for Billy Crystal and so forth. So if we wanted to get anything, we had to write it ourselves. Right. But we're also competing against television comedy writers who want to get their material on. Right. So it was a very, very competitive uh, environment. I can't, there wasn't a week where someone didn't cry. Oh. <laughs> it's, and it's, uh, I'm making it sound horrible. Well, and at the same time, I, you have to keep it in perspective. Yeah. But, You're on TV. 
Yeah. You're, you're on America's beloved program on TV. So even a bad week, how bad is that when you're getting paid to live in New York? Yeah, and be on Saturday Night Live for sure. Yeah, so, exactly. So exactly. So how did how did the process work? So the week starts and you have your host. When when are you writing for that week's show? When when are you putting stuff together to to pitch? And when are you pitching? You come in on Monday and you meet the guest host and you sit around in a room. Usually now it's Lauren Michaels' office. It was Dick Ebersole's office. Mm-hmm. And you probably have some ideas in your head that you sort of pitch to the, to the host. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, there's a famous story where I pitched an idea to Robert Blake. And I, I wrote a script for him knowing he was coming where he was the Beretta character, but a very erudite English professor. <laughs> and the cockatoo would sort of speak, you know, in, 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 in Shakespearean cadence and stuff like that. <laughs> and Robert Blake looked at the script and he wiped his ass with it. Oh, my God. And threw it. Oh, oh. <laughs> probably because he couldn't care. do an English accent. You know, to probably. me, that just meant, oh, I guess we're not going to do that script. <laughs> <laughs> but it's still in the annals of, of SNL lore as one of the most offensive things a guest host ever did. But whatever. I didn't oh, you really mean he care. literally wiped his ass with it? Yeah, yeah, in front of everybody. Says, let, let me Gary, let me show you what I think of this. And he oh wipes his ass. Oh, my God. Oh, my God. <laughs> I mean, fairly rude when you think about it. But Gary, again, Gary you know, I'll tell you, I bet it was I, because he couldn't do a British accent, and, and it just scared the hell I, out of I him. I think he was intimidated by the Absolutely. fact that I wrote an intelligent character. But whatever, yeah, I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, I, I think he's gotten his comeuppance, don't you? <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I'd say he's paid his dues. Okay, so, so well, I don't know about paying his dues, but yes, he's gotten his comeuppance. So, so you pitch to the hosts, and so if the host yeah. goes for something, then you get to do it. Is that how it works? Well, and then you kind of figure out what landed and so on, what people like. You know, the producer might say, hey, that's a great idea, and the host really likes it. Go work on that. So you'd spend Monday night, Tuesday Pull an all-nighter Tuesday night just writing material. Sometimes in groups, sometimes you'd show up at the writer's wing, mm-hmm. sometimes alone. You'd, you'd write material. I always like to put a couple of scripts, um, you know, under the door early Wednesday morning. Mm-hmm. And then by Wednesday late morning, you everybody gets together, everybody, cast, crew, producers in a big room, mm-hmm. and you read through everything that was written. Wow. And then the producers and head writer would go away, you know, and pick what sketches we were actually going to do that week. But always about a half hour heavy. Right. So then on Thursday, you start to block. The band comes in. You block that. All of Friday, you block. Saturday morning and afternoon, you block. Mm -hmm. And then you do a dress show, which is always a half hour long. Mm -hmm. And then you cut that half hour so that you have a perfect live show. Mm -hmm. And and it's not sour grapes, but often a lot of my stuff would be that half hour that was cut out. Right. You know, and, and, you know, it was, it was difficult Mm -hmm. um, to work so hard on something. And then, you know, an hour before the show, it's not going to become a reality. But that was, that's the show. That's just how it goes. Right, right. You still had this incredible opportunity. So, okay, so now it happens. Three years go by, 
And by the way, I was on the show three times while you were on there with Billy Crystal and with Madonna. I, I, we've talked about yes. that, Vic. We've okay. talked about that. So, okay, so now... The yes, th- we've been to the same parties. Yeah, so, so the three years go by, and now Dick Ebersol is out, Lauren Michaels is back in. How do they deliver the news that this is changing guard here? Well, the last year I was there was with uh, Dick and Billy Crystal, Marty Short, mm-hmm. Chris Guest, mm-hmm. and the rest. Right. They only wanted to do the show for one year. Mm-hmm. So at the end of 1985, they all quit. Mm-hmm. And Dick Ebersole thought, I'm not going to go on without those guys. We did our job. Right. Dick had proposed something like Saturday Night at the Fights, I don't know, or whatever. Mm-hmm. That was going, Saturday Night Live was over uh-huh. in 1985. Uh-huh. Over. Uh-huh. I loaded up the car, truck, and I moved to Beverly in <laughs> ni- summer of 1985. Mm-hmm. But Somebody either lured Lauren Michaels back or Lauren Michaels said he would come back if he mm-hmm. could start over completely, mm-hmm. which is what he did in 1986. So as far as the public knows, the show just kept going. Right. But the truth was it was over in 1985, and then Lauren Michaels came back and started over. Wow. Okay, so you loaded up the truck. You moved to Beverly with the intention of... What? The intention of trying to capitalize on the fact that I was on SNL. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was married at the time, mm-hmm. and I, I had a wife and a parrot. And we moved across country to uh, California. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I proceeded to live that life that you know very well. You what know, did, did where, you, where look you're like? looking for work, mm-hmm. you're, you're hustling, you're, you're meeting agents, you mm-hmm. try to get development deals, mm-hmm. all of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, were, were doors and, opening you know, for you because of the Saturday Night Live thing, or were you struggling to get those doors to open? Well, I, I was lucky enough that I had ICM as an agent, and that was because of SNL. Mm-hmm. So I was lucky enough to have doors open. I had a development deal at CBS, and that was because of SNL. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was very fortunate. Mm-hmm. I've always felt that I was one of the lucky people. But at the same time, you know that it's also a struggle. Just because you have a development deal doesn't mean that you develop anything that works. Absolutely. Which was the case. Mm-hmm. You know, I moved from pilot to pilot, short-lived series to short-lived series. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was kind of my life. I always wanted something to become a Seinfeld, for example, right. or a movie to take off. Mm-hmm. But my reality in Los Angeles was that I was a working actor. I worked. I always had to hustle, but I always landed on my feet with something. So you were able to support yourself and your, your little family, your, your parrot and your wife, as an actor? I was able to buy yeah, parrot food, and uh, yeah, I, I was able Kibble. to have Kibble. a life. Uh-huh. Okay. Um, I had good years, I had bad years, mm-hmm. but at the same time, I always had opportunities. Excellent. Okay, we, that's that's a good thing. Okay, so now you get into the game show. Is the next thing game show hosting? Is that what happened next? What what happened next? Kind of, sort of. You know, it, there, there's never a, a, a clear narrative of anything. You know, you, I, you don't sit down and plan out, well, if that doesn't work out, I'll go into game shows. Right. Yeah. You know how it is. Things yeah. just sort of happen for right. me. Right, so how did that I have happen? a work ethic. Uh-huh. You know, I have this Midwestern work ethic. Uh-huh. I used to say, I just want to work. Give me any script unless it's porn. But give me the script anyway. <laughs> let me at least look at it. Mm-hmm. You know, let's, let's, let's look at every opportunity. So 
there came a time when I needed work and I started writing for game shows and I started producing and things like that. Um, actually, there's a very good story here. After 10 years of working, um, I just kind of went belly up. You know, I was sort of, the well kind of went dry and I wasn't getting any work. Mm -hmm. I had done a series in the 80s with George Hamilton. Mm -hmm. So he and I be remained friends. And in like 19, I don't know when it was, in the early 90s, I just wasn't getting any work. Mm -hmm. And I was broke, basically. And I was strolling down Ventura Boulevard, and I saw George Hamilton with his ex-wife, Alana Stewart, in a restaurant. Mm -hmm. And I walked in to say hi, and I said, what are you doing? They said, well, we're starting a new daytime television show, sort of like, um, you know, Kathy Lee and Regis in the morning. Mm -hmm. And um, I said, well, that's great. Who's writing for it? And he said, well, we've got some writers. I said, Listen, how about I come in and I just, you know, beef things up a little bit? You know, you know me, George, you like me, and you don't even have to pay me, but if the show gets picked up, well, maybe you'll hire me. Mm -hmm. Well, that's a no-lose situation. It was a desperate move on my part, mm -hmm. but I didn't reveal that. Mm -hmm. And George thought, hey, I got a free rider. I know he's clever. Well, for the weeks of the pilots, we did two weeks of pilots, I busted my ass. I wrote material, I produced material, mm -hmm. I really proved myself to be worthy. Mm -hmm. So when the show was picked up, George said, well, there's our producer. I love that and, story. Yeah. And I went from looking, <laughs> there was a day, now I'm divorced at this point too, so, so I, guess, I guess there is a dark period. I'm unemployed and I'm divorced and the parrot is gone. <laughs> and... I'm living in Studio City in a little apartment, and Julia is on TV on Seinfeld, mm. and she's on the cover of Life magazine, <laughs> and they're mimicking the Beatles from Meet the Beatles. Oh, my So, I mean, God. they're the phenomenon of television, right? Right, right. I went to an ATM machine, and I couldn't take any money out because I only had $19 in the bank, and oh. 20 was the minimum withdrawal. Okay, so Gary, tell, tell, wait, so tell me, tell me that feeling because I, I, we've discussed this on this show with a few other people who have been in a position of watching their friends like have uh -huh. massive success while they've been struggling. What was that feeling? Because I imagine it was a lot of it was complicated feelings, right? Happy for Julia, but at the same time, a yeah. little self pity. I mean, like, so what was that like for you? Yeah. Well, that's exactly what it is. Of course, I'm happy for Julia. Of yeah. course, I am. Yeah. This is one of my dearest friends, and of course I'm thrilled. There's a tinge of jealousy, mm -hmm. but at the same time, you're going, wow, I am really on the other side of life's coin here. <laughs> and it's, it's frustrating, I guess, mm -hmm. because you feel like you're, you, you feel like you're as good in a way, mm -hmm. but you just haven't been found. Did you ever try to make a connection to, to get yourself on Seinfeld, to get connected with Seinfeld? Did you ever make that phone call? Uh, that must, oh, I used, I used to go by the set and watch them, you know, and say hi to Larry, who I knew very well, of mm -hmm. course, and Julia. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, it, yeah, I did, but I don't think it was to say, hey, look at me, how about you put me on the show? I, I just, I don't think that was the reason. I think it was just to go to see my friend. Mm -hmm. I never think about things being an opportunity to be, um, you, I just don't look at it that way. I don't think, I don't look at anything like, hey, maybe if they see me, they'll think of me. I just kind of 
show up. Okay. <laughs> I, I, there's no ulterior motive. I just show up. Mm-hmm. Um, but the showing up wasn't leading to anything, and I was okay with that. Mm-hmm. But one night, I have no food and no money, and I found a candy bar in the couch cushions, and I remember thinking, oh, good, I've got some sustenance to get through the night. Holy shit. So it was that low okay. when I ran into George Hamilton. Uh-huh. And I guess the point that I'm trying to make is I, I never want to, like, suck up to anyone to say, look at me, give me a job. Uh-huh. But I am willing to say, hey, look, I can prove myself. Uh-huh. Um, how about I do this for you for nothing? So you're in a no-lose situation. Uh-huh. I'll prove myself, and then we'll see where it goes. Uh-huh. Well, that's exactly what happened with George Hamilton. Uh-huh. And so now I'm the producer, one of the producers of a daytime television show, mm-hmm. and I hire myself as the announcer, so I have two paychecks coming in. Mm-hmm. And the funny thing is, I never had to look back from then on. Wow. That's what led to the game shows. Somebody saw me from Reicher Entertainment and said, oh, he would be great hosting, I think the first thing I did was the Newlywed Game. Mm-hmm. And the Newlywed Game led to Beat the Clock. Um, with the same organization, mm-hmm. and, you know, it, it just sort of happened. And you hosted the Miss America pageant. <laughs> I hosted the Mrs. America oh, pageant. Oh, the Mrs. America, excuse me. <laughs> Even better. Yes, okay, so now, Mrs. America. So all this yes. is happening, um, and then you become, at some point in here, a restaurateur, no? Yes. Okay, you so... Know, I had a... I am remarried at this point, and I have a young son. Okay. And I am, um, I had finished hosting the game shows, mm-hmm. and I bought a restaurant in, in Simi Valley, mm-hmm. and I was a restaurateur, but at the same time, actually I was doing at the same time um, Beat the Clock, and I was a sh- on a show on NBC called Hidden Hills. Uh-huh. So there was this period where I was probably the busiest human on earth, running a restaurant, and then I'd fly to Florida to do Beat the Clock and come back to do Hidden Hills. Mm-hmm. It, but it never seemed like work to me because I thought, this is what I came here for. Right. This is the dream, right. to be this busy. Right, right. And so what happened, so how did that change for you that you ended up back in Cedar Falls? Well, you know, there's this thing that happened to me chemically because I had a kid. Okay. And by chemically, I mean it was a transformation of spirit mm-hmm. where suddenly when I looked at this boy, I wanted him to have the life that I was given. Mm-hmm. And as much as I think I miss L.A., I miss the people, I miss the industry. Mm-hmm. I, very, I miss the streets. I miss Mel's Diner. I miss lots of things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But as a father with a son mm-hmm. who couldn't let his little boy just run down the street where sending him to school was an additional $40,000 a year, Mm -hmm. where the air was bad, where I was stuck in traffic three hours a day, I felt very, very selfish Mm -hmm. because it wasn't the reality I wanted to give my son. I wanted him to grow up like I did, running into a cornfield, leaving his bike in the front yard without fear of it getting stolen. Mm -hmm. These things. I know I'm sort of talking this idyllic world, but... I wanted to get him somewhere close to it and let him discover himself rather than, I didn't want to say, hey, you'll get braces if daddy gets a show this fall. <laughs> That's know? like the furthest thing from selfishness that I've ever heard, Gary. So let's just get that clear. Okay, so, yeah, okay. 
So you're well, motivated. I looked around the country mm-hmm. looking for what I might do. Mm-hmm. And I called an a, 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 uh, advertising agency in my hometown. Mm-hmm. It was more coincidence than intentional. Mm-hmm. But there was this growing advertising agency, and I said, hey, I'd like to just discuss the possibility of working for you. Mm-hmm. Well, they rolled out the red carpet. Mm-hmm. They really literally said, what would you like to do? We would give anything to have you back. Mm-hmm. And so in 2003, I, I moved back to Cedar Falls mm-hmm. um, with my family and started this job in advertising. Mm-hmm. Now, that's the idyllic part of the story, but life has curves. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was divorced a year later. It, mm-hmm. You know, it wasn't the situation that worked for my, my uh, wife at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, just the way life goes, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the best of intentions can not always get exactly the uh, results that you were hoping to have. Absolutely. But at the same time... Mm-hmm. I'm working. I'm I'm well respected in my community. Mm-hmm. My kids are healthy. We had had another son at that time, mm-hmm. and again, it's like it's like living in New York on Saturday Night Live. Well, I'm still getting paid to be in New York. Well, I'm still getting paid to give my children good schools and clean air. Mm-hmm. And so I look at my life that way, and I thought, well, this is good. Mm-hmm. Um. I became very, very involved in community work because I just wanted to be. I wanted to be the guy that you could go to to raise money for Habitat for Humanity or uh, Self-Help International or the Red Cross or American Heart Association. And I have skills, you know, whether it's the game show skills or whatever. I have skills. I can get up in front of people and and have fun and entertain them and, and, and um, I don't want to say educate them, but educate them to the cause at hand. Okay, so now this is this is a, this is an important this is really the crux of it here with you because being of service, being of public service has become your life. Um we'll get yeah. to what you're doing now and running for the house of the Iowa House of Representatives, but where did this start? This 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 wanting to be of service. Were you always that way as a kid? Was that inbred in you from your parents? Did it did you have an epiphany? At what point did you realize that being of service was your calling? Well, all my life I've been interested in politics. Okay. And my, my mother and father always talked politics. I was interested. I always knew what was going on. Mm-hmm. When I got involved with people like Julia Louis-Dreyfus and Brad Hall, Paul Barras, we were very politically oriented. Mm-hmm. Our comedy was always political satire. Okay. We were always very conscious and trying to move the needle, to social consciousness. Mm-hmm. So that was always part of my life. And when I got into Cedar Falls and I'm doing things for the community, I realized that my, and I talk about my skill set a lot, but it is my skill set, is to work with people, to bridge people, to bring people together, to illuminate um, issues, to try to make things better. Mm -hmm. And so people would encourage me to go into politics. I I sort of resisted it, Mm -hmm. but then there came this time for me as the father of two sons, and I thought, what would be the best example for my kids to see mm-hmm. of what a dad does, mm-hmm. what a citizen does? Mm-hmm. And I thought, you know what? It's to put your life on the line and try to be a public servant. Mm-hmm. And so I got into this. It's, I've been running for office now for 21 months. 
Um, But this started, but this political run, this particular one started with, I believe, a blog. Well, you were doing some writing for your community newspaper, but you had that blog, Gary Has Issues, back when you came to Women Who Write back years ago. Yes. Right? So that started you putting your political view out there in sort of a public way, yeah? Yeah. In fact, you nailed it. You actually reminded me of something that I sort of forgot. I was writing for the local paper. I wrote the left side of the Sunday paper, which was the progressive perspective, mm-hmm. but it was a casual thing that I did. Right. But I started this blog about four or five years ago, Gary Has Issues, mm-hmm. and it was just my perspective on what's going on largely in the national and world stage, right. but just my perspective. And I've been writing this. I've got hundreds of articles in there. Mm-hmm. But because of that, that's why people would encourage me, well, Gary, you, you seem to have a, a clear perspective. You seem to be honest. Um, you you seem to be the kind of person that we need more of in politics. So that's where the encouragement would come from. Well, I, I beg to differ. I believe it came from when you visited my house and did Women Who Write five years ago, and I began calling you Mr. President. <laughs> well, that, you know, you know Have what? I not called Take you Mr. Credit. President because since we first the met? The fact that you, you called me that, and you call me that, and I'm saying this sincerely, you call me that because you could always tell that I was trying to do, I wasn't doing this for ego. I wasn't doing this for any reason except trying to do the right thing. So you started calling me Mr. President. Well, that encouraged me a great uh, See, deal. there you go. That's and what I'm taking I credit. I came out to do Women Who Write, <laughs> oh my goodness, it was like, it was like this love fest of, of humanity. It was just so wonderful yeah. that I felt like, yeah, I can do this. Yes, you can. And so, okay, so we're, we're getting to the end of the hour, and, and I have a couple last questions, but I just want to say out publicly, Gary is running for um, the Iowa House of Representatives and uh, for the Democratic Party, and you are a fine and good and upstanding and caring human citizen, and I hope that your constituency is behind you and giving you support and strength. And I wish you the best with it. And, um, I, I, I was kid. I, I, you know, I wasn't even kidding five years ago when I called you Mr. President. I think there's really (laughs) big things in store for you, Gary. I can see a tremendous political future because your heart's in the right place. And just as I believe Hillary Clinton is a public servant, I believe you are a public servant and um, we need well, public servants out there for us. Okay, so now I have two quick questions for you. First one, yeah. is there anybody in your travels or that you've yet to meet that hope to meet, is there anybody that that makes you tongue-tied, that intimidates the hell out of you? Is there a celebrity that has just taken your breath away or your, your words away? Um, interesting. You know, uh, Barack Obama is someone that I would like to have an opportunity one day to and talk to and have dinner with. I have had the opportunity to meet Joe Biden, and I'm equally impressed. Um, you know, those are the people, those are two people that I, I truly, truly admire. Um, I have had the opportunity to meet Hillary Clinton, never for enough time that I would have enjoyed. Mm-hmm. You know, I would have liked to have, have talked in depth with her more. Bernie Sanders as well. I, I've had the opportunity on several occasions to meet Senator Sanders. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't say that I'm tongue-tied with them, but those are people that I truly admire for their commitment to public service. And the I only that. time in my life when I was tongue-tied was at the SNL reunion, mm-hmm. the 40-year reunion, and I met Paul McCartney on stage. There you go. The end of the show. <laughs> well, and 
I'm a Beatle fan, and I never met Paul McCartney, and I put my hand out, and I said, Sir Paul, I've waited 50 years to shake your hand. And he said, well, it's about time you did then. You know, and I thought, well, that's a great Beatle thing to say. Yeah, but here's, but he's staring at me. He probably thinks I'm Robert Downey Jr., but he's staring at me, (laughs) and he's opening the door for me to have a conversation. And I didn't know what to say. Yeah. In my head, I'm thinking, I'm going to do my Ed Sullivan impression, which I've done for 50 years. <laughs> Yesterday and today, our studio has been filled with hundreds of newspaper and photographers, and these professionals are great. And I could do the whole thing. Yeah. Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. And I almost did it. And Dana Carvey moves in, and they start playing air guitar, and the moment was passed. Yeah. But here I had waited since I was six years old mm-hmm. to meet that guy. The left-handed baseman, mm-hmm. and I'm a lefty, and I just didn't know what to say. Yeah, but you know what? You had the moment, Gary. You you didn't have the moment as you created it in your head because we don't get to do yeah, the results, right. as you said. But you got. But he knows that you are a human being on the planet, and you connected for that right. moment. So you had that. Right. That's huge. We don't all get to meet a beetle, but but yay. No. Okay. So all right. So here's my yeah. here's my last question. Um, and I ask this because, you know, this show is about interviewing my heroes, people that I respect and who have, who are living their dream, who have created their dream and live it. And, but we all have our humanity. Do you, Gary, have any guilty pleasures? Is there anything you indulge in, whether it be music, TV, food, an activity that you just kind of hope nobody's watching while you're doing it? Is there anything you have shame around, Gary? <laughs> Well, on the superficial level, yes, because I like uh, I like uh, Hawaiian punch, peanut butter cups, and a good cigar. There you go. Together? And I have not together. Say not a together. TV. <laughs> what? Say not together. You don't do those things together. I hope. Oh yes, I do. Are oh, you saying? Of course, I do. <laughs> you asked. You said guilty pleasure, and now you're holding me accountable for it. I, I have it. a TV in my garage. Uh huh. And I will put on Help or A Hard Day's Night or The Godfather Uh, trilogy. Uh And I will light up a cigar, Hawaiian punch, and peanut butter cup. (laughs) And I'm probably the happiest human on the planet. All right, I'm going to have to taste Hawaiian punch and a peanut butter cup together because right now it sounds absolutely awful, but I'm trusting that there's something no, there. No, no, it's in the Bible. I think it is. I think it was decreed that peanut butter cups and Hawaiian punch should go together and you find salvation. I think it's fair. I love it. I love it. I love you. Gary Kroger, thank you so much for being our guest tonight. I'm so... Oh, Vic, you're I, such a pleasure. It's such a joy. You're so wonderful. Uh, I and I follow you, young lady. Oh. I follow you and your uh, accomplishments and your fantastic book and the and women who write. I'm just I'm still waiting for the invite back. I haven't gotten it. You are invited. I, I hear by. I'm posting yeah. on Throwback Thursday. Yeah. The pictures from women who write. All right. Tomorrow. All right. Wait. Wait. When are you coming to L.A.? Because we're on the air right now, and I have witnesses. Because you're invited back. Tell me when you're going to be here, and you're on. We want you. 
when this election is over, okay. which, you know, win or lose, okay. November 9th, my life becomes my own a little bit again. All right. And I plan to go to L.A. to see my friends and to do things. Well, there you go. You're, we're going to have you back. I can't wait. It's going to be fantastic. I'm really looking forward to it. And Wheezy's going to send I you the wait. Castles documentary, and I'm going to send you the link to Bob. And and um, and I can't wait till you come back, Gary. Thank you so much. Thank, thank you, Vic. Take care. Night. Talk to you later. Bye-bye. Bye. So, Justin Wheezy, I thought Gary was fabulous, very entertaining, and and um, good. A lot of food for thought. I, I I love his 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 commitment to public service. I respect that so much. And and my first takeaway was was that um, that he was willing to do anything to prove himself, even work for nothing. And and I've been in that situation, and 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 I I to- I, I respect it. I get it. Um, Wheezy, what did you think? What the takeaway was? I thought it was reinvention. Ah. I think he's a very clever, creative guy who is a multitasker and also like a quadruple threat <laughs> if you add politics to all of it. And he's willing to just get in there and say, what else do I need to do? I, I think that's perfect. I, I agree with that completely. And he has reinvented himself so many, many times. And I will say this now with all of you as my witnesses. I've been calling him Mr. President for five years. <laughs> I have no doubt there's going to be a day when he's going to be running on a ticket and get damn close, if not all the way there. He's he's a good man. He's a good well, man. yeah, he is. Um, thank you all for, for being with us tonight on The Road Taken. We'll see you back here next Tuesday night for another edition of The Road Taken. Okay, so you guys, um, you can find me um, on all social media at Vicki Abelson. So that basically works for Facebook, for Twitter, for Instagram, for Google+. I make it really easy for you to find me. The only hard part is you have to be able to spell my name. No, there's no Y. No, there's no E. V-I-C-K-I. And Abelson, not spelt like the word Abel, but it's A-B-E-L-S-O-N. So come out and check me out. Follow me, friend me. I, I, I hate that follow. What is that follow? I'm not Jesus. Don't follow me. Friend me. And, you know, I hate this thing where on social media where they say your your ratio should be way higher for how many people you follow on Twitter than follow you. Like, it's only good if you, like, are followed by, like, 15,000 people, but you only follow three. No. If you follow me, I'm going to follow you back. I want to interact with you. We are friends then. we They might not call it friends on Twitter, but we're then friends. So anyway, so come find me on social media, and I hope to find you back. Oh, Vicky, you're so fine, you're so fine, you blow my mind, hey, Vicky. So Justin, social media, something about Facebook has allowed me to not only have fun and, and go back and forth and, you know, have cute little quips with people, but it's really established very strong, deep relationships. And one of my very first relationships on Facebook was with a guy named Rick Smolke from Addison, Illinois. And I don't know how we connected. All I know is he was seeing what I was doing with Women Who Write at the very beginning. This is when I first started. This is going back eight years ago. And he immediately said, I want to help you. Rick Smolke is a commercial printer. He also does personal printing, you know, from business cards to CD to packaging to signs, calendars. He does all of that stuff. But then... And I hired him. He did the galleys for my book. He did my bookmarks. He did my signature plates. There, He is my go-to guy. And what I will say about quick impressions is 
what sets them apart from every other printer is the customer service. They are just the most amazing people. They have graphic artists on there that will help you design your card. Their prices will match any wholesaler on the internet. They'll get it shipped to you. Their prices are the best. The relationship you will have with them is the best. So what I'm going to suggest is if you have anything you need done, whether it's for your, they do, they do professional football teams. They do huge corporations, the printing. They do huge jobs, but they no job is too small because they're really people. They're people people. They're how does, what's that expression? They're people persons. And so if you have anything you need done, please call Quick Impressions. In sh- they're right outside of Chicago, Quick Impressions. And please ask for Rick Smolke and tell him that Vicky sent you. And I promise he, he's going to take, they are going to take such good care of you and match any price you'll get anywhere. Quick Impressions, Rick Smolke. And you can find them at quickimpressions.com. And that's quick, Q-U-I-K, no C, quickimpressions.com. Save the C for the Rick and ask for Rick. Hi, I'm Vicki Abelson. Please join me for The Road Taken, celebrity maps to success for those of us still seeking ours. Tuesdays, 6 p.m. Pacific Time, 8 Central, 9 p.m. Eastern on Conversations Radio Network. 